0: Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. Um, today we're gonna talk about sexual intimacy. Um, beyond that, just intimacy in general, right? It's hard to have sexual intimacy if we don't experience emotional intimacy. It's hard to have emotional intimacy if we're not experiencing sexual intimacy. And so they they are not mutually exclusive, but they're very, very, very intertwined. And so we wanna understand sexuality and sex in a way that is uh, faithful to God's design, but also brings us joy and life and energy, right? It shouldn't be uh, a bad thing. And so that's, that's what we talked about last week, right? Was that sex is a gift and it's a gift from God. So because it's a gift, it shouldn't be looked at as if it's gross. It shouldn't be worshiped as if it is a God. Uh, both of those would be abuses of something that is a good gift that God gives us. We said that God was in favor of sex, right? We went a step further than that, and said that God was in favor of good and pleasurable sex so much so that he he designed and created parts of the body uniquely with really no other purpose other than sexual pleasure, right? He also wrote an entire book of the vital that was devoted to uh, somewhat of a holy eroticism, right? Song of Solomons is very visual and it's very detailed in its explanation of of sexual things, right? But it's in a good, righteous setting because it it is found written within the context that God created and designed sex to fit in. And so uh, we wanna look at it and understand it as that. And that was kind of the main point last week. And so if you missed last week, please go back and listen. I think it provides a really good foundation uh, for this week and the next coming weeks uh, if you if you pop into uh, the middle of one of these sermons and you and you really don't have a context for what we're we've been building around, uh, it'll be challenging and a little bit a little bit weird. All right, next week Tiffany and I will speak together uh, for most of the sermon time, um, and so we'll be able to bounce some questions off of each other and and just hear some questions that we've been asked uh, through through different counseling sessions and and things like that, and so I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, I think it'll be helpful um, for all of us, I think it'll be helpful to hear a female's perspective uh, as we look at how does sexuality and sex actually get played out real, real practically inside the context of a marriage, right? And so uh, we'll look at a portion of text in 1 Corinthians that at first read is kinda like, ooh, that doesn't sound very, doesn't sound very exciting or joyful or romantic. But as we unpack it, I think we'll understand the heart of of what Paul's writing to the Corinthians as well as how that plays out in our real lives. And so we'll look at that next week. Uh, Because uh, of sin, right, we've all experienced some degree of sexual brokenness. And so we must look to Jesus uh, to both restore us as sinful human beings, but also to restore sex to God's design for it to, to be enjoyed. And so we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. Today it'll provide kind of a springboard for a, a section uh, in Genesis 2 to really understand what is God's design for intimacy and how does sex really play into that reality. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, we'll read verse 1 through 3. It's the same text that we read last week. Next week we'll continue on in our teaching uh, through the, the book of 1 Corinthians 7. We're gonna uh, remind us of some of the things that we learned from this text last week quickly and then jump into Genesis chapter number two. So if you'd like, go ahead and, and turn to Genesis chapter two in addition to Genesis, or 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. All right, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter number seven, verses one through three. The Bible says, "'Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, "'it is good for a man "'to not to have sexual relations with a woman.'" But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. This is the word of the Lord. All right, and so we see in, in this text, in 1 Corinthians chapter number seven, that the Corinthian people, if you, if you don't know much about the Corinthian people, I won't spend the time to build the context entirely. Uh, the, the church was being overrun with sin, specifically sexual sins. And so they were very sexual people. Right And they were, they were looking to freely express that uh, in and out of the context of God's design, so they were uh, practicing sexuality outside of the, the boundaries of marriage, they were practicing uh, uh, sexuality inside the bounds of marriage that were not limited to those bounds of marriage, and so there was just a proliferation of people that were uh, sexually Oversexualized, right and so we, we talk about how our society kind of kind of plays into that reality, and so we, as American Christians and as people living inside of our culture, can look to the Corinthians and immediately find some identification with them right it 's not too over the top to think about how uh, what, what practically an oversexualized society looks like. All we have to do is drive down the highway right and uh, we see uh, billboards for I, I made mention of an uh, uh, an ad in an airplane magazine that I once saw with a uh, very provocative pinup, dre- uh, a lady dressed up as a 50s pinup, uh, uh, pinup uh, kind of just motif. And she was in a very provocative position and the top of the ad said curious, question mark, right? And then the ad was like for Snap-on tools. It was like a URL link to buy tools. And so it's like there's, there's sex is, is driving and selling all kinds of things. Even things that are so unrelated to sexuality, right? Like a wrench, how does that make the a connection? And he's like, well, maybe, maybe that's what my question's gonna be about, uh, so hopefully you can answer it. But uh, just over, over the top, we talked about how uh, the pornography industry inside of the states and outside of the states is a trillion dollar a year industry, uh, outgrossing both the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball every single year combined, right? And so it's, it's insanity. We're overrun with uh, this expression of sexuality. So what do we do? Paul's uh, instructions are in response to some of the Corinthian believers writing Paul and asking him some questions in regards to uh, the topic, right? And they, they had come to the conclusion, uh, some of the Corinthian believers in Corinth had come to the conclusion that because of sexual Uh, perverted sexual expressions found within the Corinthian church, Uh, some believers in Corinth had made the conclusion that the best life is one of celibacy. That's a life lived without any sex, not not confined to a context like the scriptures give us uh, the belief and understanding of, not uh, confined, period. Whether you're married or unmarried, whether you're in a committed relationship or out of a committed relationship, maybe we should just not have anything to do with this thing, called sex and obviously that that wasn't logical because we know that sex is a uh, primary means uh, of sex is that we reproduce right and so uh, so the only means of reproducing yes it is down the line some way we talked about how uh, we were able to have kids in a in a way that was not the normal way uh, necessarily but there was still uh, sex that took place for conception of, of even adopted children. And so without sex, writing that completely out of our culture, our culture discontinues, right? And so the Corinthians aren't, they weren't playing this out very well. They, were, they had a good thought in their minds, but it didn't really work out. And so Paul's positive instruction to them are that sexual relations uh, between man and woman are good and a rightful thing inside the context of marriage. Right, and we spent some time last week talking about how we as image bearers of God are sexually created people. And, and, and part of that sexuality is to perpetuate more image bearing people. And so it's, it's part of God's design, part of God's beautiful plan. This week, we want to uh, focus in on a particular aspect of our sexuality, like we've already said, Intimacy. We, should see, we see uh, in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll dive into this a little bit more next week practically, but uh, we see that sex should be the giving of oneself. Right, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. There's, a, there's an element of giving. Sexual expression inside the context of marriage should be one of giving, not necessarily of only receiving. Right, and so sex should be the giving of oneself physically and emotionally to the other person. The husband should give and the wife should give. And then sex ultimately becomes a way two people, for two people to say to one another, I belong to you exclusively. I belong to you completely and I belong to you personally. And so sex should build into intimacy. Sex should not rob away from intimacy. And so from the context, we could see that these these believers who were lobbying for a state of celibacy amongst their congregation were people that have experienced brokenness, where sex was about taking, where sex was about power, and sex was not about giving. It was not about joy and was not about pleasure. And so we wanna look at that. What exactly is intimacy? Please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter number two. Genesis chapter number two And let's understand God's design for intimacy. Then we'll look at some ways and and some ways that sinfulness hinders or interferes or takes away from intimacy. We'll talk about uh, Jesus and the restoration that he brings through his death and resurrection and then practically what do we do to walk out building intimacy inside of our relationships. And so for single people, uh, I want you to, to listen. I want you to take tons of notes I want you to, to understand how do, I, how do I build these types of relationships in, friendful, in, in a way that's friendly and not sexual so that I know how to be a close companion of somebody, so that I know how to protect them, so that I know how to pursue friendship in a way that's not sexual. And I promise you, as it relates to your relationship with your spouse, when sex is introduced to those things, and you've learned how to be really great friends, and you've learned how to study and learn likes and dislikes from other people, and you've learned how to be a friend that protects emotionally and physically the people that are around you, it will make for much safer, much more enjoyable, less boundaries and hindrances to the time in your life where you come to. Uh, you're able to express sex freely inside of its context. And so I think there's things you'll learn that will help you in the right now. I think there's things that will help you in your future marriage as you continue to pursue that. And so uh, don't just track with me. Next week will be a lot of practical things that will be helpful for you as well. And so, and then the fourth week, we'll spend some time talking specifically to you how to manage sexual desires in a way that's, that's healthy and, and holy and righteous, all right? Uh, what is intimacy? That's, that's our topic for today, what is intimacy? Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter number two. We'll read verse 23 through 25. We'll talk briefly about this and then we'll move on explaining how this connects to our everyday lives. Verse number 23, the Bible says, "'Then the man said, "'This at last is bone of my bones "'and flesh of my flesh. "'She shall be called woman "'because she was taken out of a man.'" All right? Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? This is, this is one of my favorite verses for a number of reasons. Um, one being it's the introduction for the very first time of the phrase one flesh, right? So inside of my home, that essentially means I can get off the hook for anything that I don't wanna do as long as my wife goes as my, uh, my, my better half, right? So if there's something that, that happens and she shows up and I didn't particularly want to go, it's like I get to go too because we are, uh, in fact, according to the Bible, one flesh. Terrible joke, I know, uh, but uh, I do, do enjoy that. Uh, but in the garden, right, in the garden, in God's design, in God uh, making us uh, as man, as women, that, that are compatible in a number of ways, uh, including sexuality, he, he, he formed this tight bond between this husband and this wife, Adam and Eve. Right? It's unique to all of his relationships. It's unique to all of his interactions with the rest of creation, and he had a a major hand in all of creation, right? He was the guy that got to to name all the animals. He was the guy that got to, to work the ground. He got to do a lot of amazing things. Adam and Eve, though inside of their relationship, experienced deep intimacy as two people Two different people coming uh, with two different worldviews, two sets of likes, two sets of uh, emotional diagnostics enter into a relationship together in the context of a covenant relationship of marriage, begin having sex and become one flesh, right? Sex in itself is an indication and an expression of that uniting act of two people becoming one flesh, right? As, as the biology works itself out in that way where one, it's, it's hard to differentiate where one body starts and one body be, ends. And so we see in that that every sex act is supposed to be someone, something that is uniting. It's a uniting act, right? This is why when we are not married, When we are not engaged or we are engaged in sexual activity beyond our marriage covenant, we begin to feel these marriage-like ties, right? There's a a natural connection that happens between uh, two people that are uh, having sexual relations. We begin to feel like the other person has obligations to us. But without marriage, that person does not which leads us to feel isolated, feels, leads us to, be, feel, to feel trapped, leads us to feel uh, the weight of this thing that I desire, but I'm doing it, I'm trying to get it in a way that God didn't design for me to have it. And so that leads to lots and lots of trouble. And so as we engage in sexual activity beyond marriage, right, before marriage, after marriage, whatever the case may be, as we engage in sexual activity, we're essentially uniting ourselves in real meaningful and tangible ways that, that, that is emotional, that's physical, that affects our spirituality, right? It has deep, we talked about last week, the sexual sins, the Bible says in First Corinthians 6, are unlike any other sin. Because sexual sins aren't just sins, they're sins against your very own body. And so those hurts Those wounds, those heartaches, they run extremely deep, right? And so people end up hurt. Adam and Eve though, as they're standing in the garden, the Bible goes on to talk about how they were both naked and they were not ashamed, right? And so immediately, my ears perk up, naked, right? It's a word we like, hopefully, we like to enjoy the nakedness of our spouse, and, and we may not be we may be self-conscious where we don't necessarily enjoy our nakedness as men and women. I get that that, that happens on both sides of, of the aisle, right? But there is something beautiful about nakedness in its design, in its context, and in our spouses over time as we become intimate with each other, as we as we express that sexually, as we express that emotionally, as we express that physically we find our spouse's bodies more beautiful and more beautiful, hopefully, right? That's the goal. So uh, naked, while that that is where our immediate mind goes is that we are standing in front of each other without any clothes on, actually carries tremendously more weight to, to it than that. right? It's not just a, we were standing there without clothes on and we were not ashamed. They were in fact standing there without clothes on. And we know that that's true because as God comes to search them out, what do they do? They immediately run and hide as a result of their sin. And what's the first thing that God does? He gives them clothes to hide their nakedness. And so there wasn't an innocence to this anymore. And so that's what makes it not so innocent for us anymore. That's what gives us those self-conscious body uh, difficulties. That's what makes it awkward the first few times as you, you date well and you stand in front of your spouse both of you naked, and it makes it uh, just different, right? You've never done this, or you've done this with other people, and it wasn't meaningful like it is now because it wasn't done inside the context of marriage. It carries more than that. It's the idea that they were completely exposed before one another. Completely exposed before one another, right? It's, it's this idea that they were naked emotionally, Right? There was nothing uh, emotionally between them, their feelings they could articulate perfectly, like praise God for a return to that day when uh, me as a, a male can put into words exactly what I'm feeling because sometimes I struggle with that, right? Like I don't know, like you're frustrated, obviously. Why are you frustrated? I don't know why I'm frustrated and I don't know how to articulate why I'm frustrated. Like that conversation happens uh, with me as a part of it often, right? And so they, they weren't experiencing that. The Bible says they were naked and unashamed. They were standing in front of each other without any block or any hindrances, emotionally, physically, sexually, or spiritually. There was not sin that had overwhelmed their life enough where they began to hide themselves in shame. And so they experienced the most intense intimacy that is available and, and proper for humanity as they were naked emotionally, as they were naked physically, as they were naked spiritually, holding nothing back from each other. There was nothing they weren't willing to give to one another, right? And so we see that in God's design, sex, who, which is designed by God, actually builds into this intimacy of full exposure. And we'll see that because of the work of Jesus, we should be able to stand in front of our spouses, completely naked, holding nothing back, finding joy and not experiencing shame in the context of our marriage relationship. And so that's my prayer for us, that's my hope for us, that as we, as we dive into this topic, that we would see sex in its proper context, that we would understand it in its proper context, that, that Jesus, uh, the work of Jesus and his cross would bring healing to all the sinful expressions that we've, been, uh, that we've experienced, that we've initiated, that we've participated in, or that have been committed in, in atrocious and awful, most of disgusting ways against us, right? So let's see this, God gives us this sexual desire to build into our intimacy, and so we'll summarize both of these texts this morning this way. Sexual desire is designed by God to express life-producing intimacy life-producing intimacy, right? Sexual desire is a gift that is given to us by God to build into this intimacy that he desires and has designed us to experience inside the context of our marriage covenant. And so it works itself out beautifully when all of sin is stripped away, when all of shame is taken out of the picture, we get to enjoy marriages as God intended marriages to be. But we know also that, that, that that doesn't always happen that way, does it? Like marriage is hard work. Like this level of intimacy that God has designed us for, and created us for is hard work. And so we often look to cheaper substitutes, lesser things that actually harm and rob that intimacy from our marriages than do the hard work of building that intimacy within our marriages. And so I want us to see that sexual desire is not wrong It is something that we were given as a gift of God to be expressed freely inside of his design. And often our desire gets the best of us when it is expressed outside of God's design. And what was meant as a tool and as a gift to bring intimacy so often in our lives, and we've experienced the weight of this, brings isolation, right? The very drive, the very sexual appetite that God has instilled in us to build into this level of intimacy inside of our marriage relationships when taken outside of the context of that marriage relationship actually builds more into isolation than intimacy. It builds more into distrust than it does trust. And it actually is a thing that totally gets taken over by our sinful desires that even confuses sexual desire now as a negative thing right, something that should be suppressed, something that should be uh, 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 worked towards an end of, something that shouldn't be expressed freely, something that shouldn't be uh, emotionally attaching, and we detach it from its intention and it becomes this awful thing that we eventually look look at as if it's gross or we worship it as if it's God and it wreaks havoc in our lives, taking control over our emotions, taking control of our physical being, right? and gets dumbed down to nothing more than a sexual appetite that must, be, that must be satisfied at all cost, right? That's never been God's design for it. Instead of feeling more connected through sex, oftentimes we feel more lonely, sometimes even inside of the context that God designed marriage for, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Much of our experience in sex rejects oneness. It steals joy and kills unity. Kind of the opposite of what God's design is. And so let's look at just some of the ways that life, sinfulness, uh, difficulty kind of puts hurdles for intimacy inside the the context of our marriage. The first one's easy. We're not gonna put it up on the screen. I think it's kind of a given. But seasons of life are something that interfere with intimacy. Right we all we all understand that right we we get married and there's tons of freedom but we also get married and there's tons of school debt typically and so we're working lots and lots of hours at our job or working lots and lots of jobs to pay down this school debt, and so uh, we're running out the door as our spouse is coming in the door. Uh, then we just add another layer of complexity to that, and it's like, oh, we did finally make the time to have sex, and now we're pregnant with this baby, and now this life is going to be uh, deeply connected to one of the participants in the uh, in the marriage relationships, and so there's there's this connect, there's these connection issues that that provoke thoughts and resentment and anger sometimes, but even beyond that, just the practical nature of my baby's a light sleeper and she's gotta stay in her crib because she's gonna wake up overnight and I don't wanna trip down the stairs to go down and get her. And so like now I've got this living human being living in our room. And so like life is a really great at throwing hurdles in our way to experience sexual expression, right? You add multiple kids to that, right? You get that layer. I don't have a ton of practical experience with that. We were just like, hurled after eight to 10 years of just absolute freedom where we could do what we wanted, do it when we wanted, wherever we wanted, right? There was tons of freedom and, and it, was, it, was, it was fun and then we add, we add kids into that mix. We didn't go with kids that wouldn't understand. We didn't go with kids that necessarily wouldn't understand. We bring a kid in our house that understands. Like he's having these conversations. We're talking with him about these types of things. So he knows more than we would like or expect To know, And so now like our scheduling just becomes that much more challenging, right? Seasons of life, we're busier, we're older, so we get tired more easily. We have kids and so we're constantly running to take care. Like these are just natural things that happen, right? And so season of life becomes a hindrance. And so we have to be productive and we have to think through and we have to plan a little bit better to experience this sexual intimacy with our spouse than we used to when we were young and free of all responsibilities except for our massive pile of school debt, right? Uh, So that's one of them. And they'll increasingly get more difficult to talk about, right, so that's the easy hurdle. And you're like, man, that seems like pretty overwhelming kind of what the stage of life we're in. We haven't had sex in months because of all these little kids that are running around screaming and always constantly needing our attention, right? And so I don't wanna downplay that as if it's not not important because I get it, man, that's a hurdle. That's a hurdle we're experiencing for the first time or we've experienced over the last two years for the first time in our life. And so I don't wanna downplay that at all. Other things that creates hurdles for intimacy is selfishness, right? Selfishness interferes with intimacy, right? This, this occurs when the serving of oneself inevitably takes priority of serving your spouse. And so for a season, your spouse may may kind of give in to your desires, but over time, she feels less and less connected to you. And this intimacy is not an emotional intimacy. It's not a spiritual intimacy. It's not a deep connection. It's not all that God intended it to be. It's like, I'm a wife and this is what I have to do. Or I'm a husband and this is what I have to do. Right. And and talking with just some some friends like I I experienced, you know, we, we we build these stereotypes for men and women, and sometimes we all don't fit inside of those stereotypes. So no doubt there's marriages in here where the the female has a much higher sex drive than the male, right? Or the male has one that out far outweighs the females. And so like you're in that balance game and you have needs, whether you're the female or the male, that you want to be satisfied. And God has given you the freedom to satisfy those needs inside of beautiful expression, inside of the context of your marriage. Yet every time you approach that, it's all about having your needs satisfied to the point where over time, the other person feels less and less and less of a deep connection with you. Right, and so sex becomes more of a hurdle because of your selfishness, right? And so while, we, while, while sex should build into one's intimacy, sex now is actually taking away from our intimacy because of our selfishness, right? What was designed for uh, service and love and taking care of one another becomes all about ourselves. It's no longer about giving to your spouse, it's about taking for yourself. As long as you're being satisfied, you have little concern for the satisfaction of your spouse. Or, we're new to marriage or we've been married a long time, right? But we're still kind of in that season of life where we've spent more time away from each other than we've spent with each other. Right? And so that, that merging of two totally different lives forming into one really hasn't taken the practical effect of what that plays out in. And so it's like, I remember a time when I was free to, to go and do what I wanted to do. I could have dinner with who I wanted to have dinner with. When I wanted to do it, I could drink beers with the boys. When I wanted to drink beers, I could go do whatever with the ladies anytime I wanted to do it. And so there's this resentment that's building into this bond that, that has been created because now I can't just do that. Right? If I'm concerned with serving my spouse and loving her well, I wanna take into account her needs, her thoughts, her feelings, and so now I ask, hey, babe, do you care if I uh, go drink a beer with so-and-so after the workday? It's like, well, I really thought you would be home, and like, tensions build, right? Because it's this clashing of two worlds, and like, you used to experience that freedom to on the way home from work stop and grab a beer, but now your wife has plans that she didn't communicate to you, and so you're frustrated, and you're challenged, Right? And so, and vice versa, right? So selfishness becomes this hurdle that builds into intimacy because two worlds have become one and we're so inclined to only think about ourselves. And for years of our life, practically, for the most part, ourselves were all we really had to think about from a responsibility standpoint. Sure, we cared about the other people around us, but I wasn't necessarily responsible for them, but now I'm responsible for the emotional, the spiritual, the physical well-being of my spouse as she's responsible for mine, right? And that, that, that creates tension, and it's difficult. And we, we immediately find out exactly how selfish we were or are, even if we didn't know it before we got married, right, because marriage is the most sanctifying relationship we have because it puts us in closer proximity than we'll ever experience with anybody else. That nakedness and that unashamedness, like the guard, you, you know it, like you've been married for first six months, man, there's all these lists of rules, everything was off, off guard. Over the course of the next six months, some of those get less and less and less. Over the next two years, some of those get less and less and less. Next thing you know, like you're leaving the door open in the bathroom. It's like what used to be secretive and what used to be your quiet time now is open to all the world. That's just one one example, kind of a silly one, but I think you get what I'm saying. So we ask ourselves as we reflect on this, do you emotionally, physically, sexually, and spiritually put the well-being of your spouse above your own well-being, right? And as single people, whether you're dating or not dating, Like, I think we could ask that question similarly. Do you emotionally, physically, sexually, and spiritually put the well-being of your close friends above your own self, right? Because inside of that relationship, I'm preferring the well-being of my single friend or my boyfriend before the context of marriage. I am expressing my desire for their well-being by not engaging with sexuality and experimenting with sex prior to its original design, right? And so we understand that, we see that. Selfishness interferes with intimacy. Selfishness robs from today what could bear good fruit tomorrow. The other thing we see is secrecy. Secrecy interferes with intimacy. We'll start with a question. What are you withholding from your spouse at this very moment? Right? What is one thing that your spouse does not know about you right now? What sins are you committing that they don't know about? What regular pattern of confession is a part of your your weekly and daily dialogue? When was the last time you repented of wrongdoing? I'm not just talking about sexual things, I'm talking about things in general. Sexual things rob intimacy the fastest, but so does lying about other silly things, right? Because lying and secrecy takes away from trust, and trust is deeply important for intimacy. And so as you're exploring this intimacy, as you're exploring this oneness, as you're exploring all that God created and designed us for inside the context of marriage, pre-marriage, whatever, Are you doing that with honesty? Where you're not withholding information from them, even the silly stuff, but more importantly, the heavy stuff. Are there books, are there sites, are there apps, are there photos, are there fill in the blank, things that you're regularly visiting that your spouse has no clue about, male or female, and come clean. Secrecy robs us of intimacy, right? And then what happens is selfishness and secrecy lead to resentment. Selfishness and secrecy lead to resentment, right? I can't trust that person, so I I learn to hate them. I learn to resent them, right? And so it doesn't happen quickly. It happens over time. Over time, I learned this as I've already communicated multiple times so clearly in working in my secular workplace. And Jordan can attest to this because he worked with me for a season. The way that these people talked about their spouse was insane to me, right? There was no love for them. There was only resentment towards them. And it was disgusting, right? That's what happens. Selfishness and secrecy leads to resentment. And resentment promises healing, but only perpetuates hurt, right? Resentment promises healing, but only perpetuates hurt because as we hold resentment towards somebody else, what are we saying? My holding resentment towards them will bring healing to my heart because they hurt me, right? But that's not what happens, is it? like bitterness doesn't just stay contained to your own heart and your own soul bitterness overflows right and bitterness starts having collateral damage in your heart and your life and affects those around you so it promises healing but it only perpetuates hurt and we got to move quickly suffering suffering interferes with intimacy past expressions of sexual brokenness keep us from experiencing intimacy with our current spouse. Perhaps you've experienced abuse of the worst kind, leaving you deeply hurt, leaving you feeling as if you must protect yourself from ever being hurt again. Perhaps you've wrestled with same-sex attraction, but now, or are, now are in or are desiring a committed heterosexual marriage And months into that marriage, you're experiencing mixed emotions. Don't know what to think. Perhaps your parents' divorce caused you so much pain that you're unable to give yourself completely away because you don't wanna experience that pain again inside of your own life. Perhaps it's none of those things but it's the stories that you've heard other people tell about their sexual brokenness and the sexual brokenness they've experienced in their lives that leaves you anxious to allow anyone in, including your spouse, for the fear that you'll be hurt, right? I don't wanna dismiss suffering as a a hindrance for intimacy because it's difficult to talk about and it's challenging to come to terms with It's challenging to process about, right? Like this suffering is something huge that robs us of the intimacy that God designed and created us for to enjoy inside the context of marriage. And so we must understand that healing precedes intimacy. Healing precedes intimacy. If I am trying to have and build intimacy into my relationship with my spouse and she is, overwhelmingly overtaken with past sexual brokenness, it's always going to be a difficulty in our relationship, right, and the same vice versa with mine, right? If we're going to not let the past prohibit the future, we need to get help so that we can experience healing. And so I wanna say this, because sometimes in in the context of church, this this is something that goes unassumed or assumed or or unsaid or unheard, and so, I hope this f- provides freedom and help for some some of you. Counseling and therapy are good things. Are good things. They're not bad things. They're great things, right? And so as we as we think about and we're confronted with suffering and we're confronted with secrecy and we're confronted with our, our life stage and uh, the, the relationships that we watched our parents engage in that were not the best of health and we desire to have a different marriage that builds into lifelong intimacy that, that is joy, the joyful expression of all that God created and designed marriage to be, we've gotta come to understand that like, we're not going to get past our past just ignoring it, right? And so counseling, therapy are great things. I believe that Jesus can heal every hurt. I can believe that Jesus can clean every wound and that Jesus will mend every single broken heart. Sometimes in the church, that reality keeps us from seeking out additional help. As if that help that I would get from counseling stands in direct opposition to the healing power of Jesus. And they don't, right? They don't. Jesus can heal every hurt, Jesus will clean every wound, Jesus will mend every broken heart. And oftentimes in His grace, what He'll use to do that is the gifts, the education, the blessings and the way that he's equipped humanity to carry and extend his grace in practical and tangible ways. So counseling does not stand in opposition to the gospel. Right, counseling becomes an expression of the gospel as Jesus uses the things he's given his people to help those who are hurting. Right, and so please, please, I beg with you, I plead with you, get the help that you need to overcome your sexual brokenness so that you could step into intimacy with your spouse the way God designed and enjoy it to its fullest the way he wants you to. If we're gonna understand intimacy, we need to first understand the basis of intimacy. That's where the gospel explores that for us. And so in the gospel, we see as the basis for intimacy, even in the context of our marriage, we see this, that Jesus endured isolation from the Father so that we could enjoy intimacy with the Father. Our intimacy with our spouse must flow out of an intimacy with our God. And when that doesn't tend to happen, we don't enjoy it the way God designed it, and we don't enjoy it in its fullness. Isaiah chapter number 53, verse four through eight, says this, the iniquity of us all. And so we see that in Jesus's enduring of isolation from the Father while he was carrying the weight of our sin, while he was experiencing the wrath of our God, that ultimately we can experience and express intimacy with one another because of this intimacy we have experienced that has been expressed and will eternally be enjoyed in Jesus. Church, this is foundational to our faith in the walking out and practice of said faith. The capacity to love our spouses as God intended is understood in the relationship to the way that God in Jesus has loved us right? We've got a beautiful example that, that, that displays the heart of the church, that displays the heart of the marriage. We've worked through this in past series. Jesus' relationship with the Father and Jesus's laying down of his life is the way that spouses should engage in relationship with each other. It's also the way that the church is expressed, Outside of union with Jesus, humanity doesn't have the capacity to experience this holistic intimacy with another person in its fullness. Sure, can they enjoy sexual pleasure? Absolutely, but they'll never understand it in the context that God designed it for, and they'll never experience it in its fullness outside of a deep, committed communion and relationship with Jesus. Because sex at its end, at its source, At the beginning, the end and everything in between is an expression of the intimacy that God has with his son and that through the son, we have now with God. It's emotional, it's physical, it's spiritual. No matter what our best attempts are at hiding aspects of our life from God, we are completely exposed before him. He knows every thought, he sees every action, he hears every word. Furthermore, sex points to the hopeful reality that we will be with Jesus for all eternity in the kingdom of heaven. So as we understand and as we engage in sexual activity inside of God's design, we see and can have confidence through the power of the gospel, what we're putting on display in that very action that any brokenness we experience will not last Any pain that we endure will not last. Any hurt that we feel will not last. In light of the gospel, we can boldly declare to our circumstances, to our hurts, to our pain, with purpose and with promise, that because of the finished work of Jesus, even this too soon shall pass. It's not lifelong, it's not eternal. Jesus has secured for us life eternal, pleasure eternal, perspective eternal. And everything we endure on earth is temporary. Personally, our brokenness finds its healing in Jesus. We must understand and walk in the realities that the love of God is towards us. We are his and in Christ we are already accepted, right? As I learn and understand my sexual brokenness, as I dialogue with other people about their special, or sexual brokenness, man, we immediately, almost always, in my heart and in their hearts, turn to a disbelief of that reality, that we are loved by God, that we are his because of Jesus, and that we are accepted by him, and now we're free to express genuine relationships with other people because we're not looking for that in those other relationships, right? When I'm looking for salvation, when I'm looking for acceptance, when I'm looking for life and healing and hope in my wife, she's again and again and again only gonna disappoint me. When she's looking for that in me, I'm again and again and again and only disappoint her, right? Jesus is the one that loves us. Jesus is where we find our acceptance and we won't be healed from our sexual brokenness until we walk in those realities. Brothers and sisters, we are loved to the very end by the one who became lonely for our loneliness the one who was afflicted for our affliction, the one who was troubled for our troubled, the one who was distressed for our distresses, who was broken for our brokenness and ultimately sacrificed for our sins. Walk in that truth, walk in that truth. You are loved by God. You are accepted by God because of the work of Jesus. And you're not left to figure out the rest of life on your own, you're left with the Holy Spirit who guides us, who helps us, who points us, who convicts us, who challenges us and encourages us to continually go back to God's design for the way he's created everything, including sexuality. And so we've been empowered to do that. So how do we walk this out? How do we build intimacy into our marriage relationships? Work through a couple things very quickly. First thing, passionately pursue each other. Passionately pursue each other, right? We do this to the point where we get to the I do's and then once we say I do, more often than not, we don't, right? We pursue like crazy to put the ring on that finger or to get that ring put on that finger and then as soon as it happens, in the same way we were pursuing, the same way we prioritized, the same way we planned, the same way we put her ahead of ourselves, quickly falls to the side. Pursue each other, be students of each other. Never stop learning about each other. Do that both in sexual ways, but also in ways that aren't sexual. Gifts, letters, words, non-sexual touching, such as holding hands, hugs, caressing, right? Pursue emotional intimacy outside of the bedroom so that you can enjoy physical intimacy inside of the bedroom. Men, learn your wife emotionally before you try to touch her physically, right? Put the time in, spend the energy. Women, reject the idea that you've got in your head that good girls don't talk about sex, right? That we we can't be open and expressive of, what we like or what we don't like or we can't even engage in the dialogue because it's dirty. It's not dirty, it's beautiful. Talk about sex. If we're gonna passionately pursue each other, let's talk about it, right? Talk about our desires. Talk about the things we enjoy. Talk about the things we don't enjoy. Talk about uh, the things that uh, you like and things you don't like, right? This can be extremely difficult and hyper-emotional. I get it. I've experienced it. Because of that, do it outside of the bedroom, right? Do it on a drive, do it on the couch, do it on the dinner table. Don't bring that emotionally driven and extremely difficult conversation to where you're laying in bed, either just having been intimate or seeking and desiring to be intimate with your wife. You want a mood killer? That's it, right? So do that outside of your bedroom. Don't bring that junk inside of your bedroom. Start slow in these conversations, All right? Meaning don't tackle, don't tackle the world in your first dialogue about sex, especially if you're a couple that's never sat down and had a serious conversation about sex. Set a timer, five, 10 minutes, put it up, set it, so it's gonna ring extremely loud. You know there's an end. No matter how awkward it is, no matter how challenging it is, like we're committed to doing this for the next five minutes, we're going to talk about our sex life and just talk about it. When it rings, stop. Set another time, do it again, right? Good resource for that is Google this. Promise it won't show up in your Covenant Eyes report. I did it, it did not show up on mine. 19 questions to amazing sex, right? Sounds kinda cheesy, but really great questions that help get the conversation started, right? Because I know I would get in that moment and I've gotten in that moment before where it's like, even with a timer, Uh, I don't know what to say, right? Don't do that. Just adds to the awkwardness. Be prepared. And so Google that. It'll be helpful for you. Second thing, we won't spend a ton of time talking about this. We'll get to it next week, but personally protect each other. Protect each other. Men and women need to feel safe to experience sexual intimacy inside of God's design. There must be trust. So confess your sins to one another. Repent of your actions. Be accountable to the ways that you've wronged them and the way that you've wrongly expressed sexuality. If you struggle with pornography, get something like Covenant Eyes and add your spouse's accountability partner and give her all of the control over your devices. Show your spouse that they're safe with you by their actions, right? One thing I try not to do and I don't do it perfectly but I almost inevitably do is I never initiate a text conversation with a member of the opposite sex without including my spouse or their spouse. Doesn't always happen, sometimes I get a response from one of them back absent of the other one, especially when I'm on the verge of ruining a surprise birthday party or something like that, which I'm really good at, so give me a heads up. Um, but just, just practice. Good things that build into developing trust with my, with my wife. If I have a meeting with a member of the opposite sex, which I do often, I always do it in a public place where I'm known, so not an obscure coffee shop where nobody's gonna know me, a coffee shop where I walk in and almost everybody in the room knows me, right? And I always let her know I'm doing that. I'm meeting with so-and-so at this time, at this day, at this coffee shop. Not because I have to give her a report, not because she demands that I report back to her, I'm doing what I can to do to build into that protection of that trust so that she knows what I'm doing is loving her alone and not seeking things from other people that I'm seeking from her. Give your spouse access to your devices. Give them all your passcodes. Give them the freedom to look and peruse as they want. Tiffany could pick up any of my devices anytime she wants. Does she ever do it? Very rarely, but she has the ability. She knows that she has the trust. Second thing is go to counseling with your spouse to help them get the help that they need. Better yet, invest in marriage counseling for the two of you because despite how great you think your marriage is, there is sexual brokenness, there is familial brokenness, there's the realities of living in a fallen world that affect the way that you relate with everybody including your spouse. And it is the most important relationship you have Spend the money, spend the time, spend the energy, and invest in that marriage. It Always blows me away. The amount of energy and time and money that's spent on getting to a wedding day, and I'm not dismissing the wedding day as an important day, it's important, but it's a day compared to the rest of your life, right? And we invest so much time, so much money, so much energy into that. And then in in pre-marriage counseling with the pastor, it's like, hey, I, I think you should invest in a year's worth of marriage counseling and visit with a counselor once a month to build a strong foundation in your marriage. It's like, oh, we're too busy. Our student loans are too much, right? Cut things out of your life that aren't necessary for what is necessary. Make it work. Second, last thing is this. And the band can go ahead and begin making their way up to get ready. And we'll dive into some more practical stuff next week. But prioritize each other. Practically prioritize each other. Invest in intimacy, right? If a hurdle is the amount of time it takes for your wife to make dinner, invest in a HelloFresh delivery a couple times a week on the days you know you're going to have sex to lighten the load, right? If it's cleaning, if it's cleaning, hire a cleaning service a couple days a week on those days that you're going to plan to have sex with your wife so that her load is lightened. Invest in intimacy, Prioritize it. Subscribe to dating boxes. Because if, like, if your marriage is anything like ours, probably the, the most amount of tension comes when I don't plan the dates or she doesn't plan the dates and in the moment we try to figure out where we're gonna go for date night. Talk about Robin intimacy. What, what, what had high hopes of an amazing night turns into us yelling at each other in the car and just turning around and going back home and eating whatever's in the fridge, right? Don't set yourself up for that. Plan and prioritize time with each other. Regular date nights, be creative. Then plan and prioritize sex, right? This is the one we don't wanna do, right? Because we have this notion that if we plan for something, it automatically takes the romance out of something, right? Do yourselves a favor. Sit down in that weird, awkward dialogue about sex and find out, hey, when are we going to do this, right? Our season of life, sometimes that looks like Tiffany's off work and I'm in the neighborhood uh, and Richard's still at daycare at school. Like, make it happen. Sometimes it means waking up at midnight intentionally when everybody else is asleep, right? Make it happen. Plan it. Prepare for it. Do the things necessary to create an environment where it can happen. What we plan to do, typically we do, right? When we plan things typically turn out better, right? Most unplanned meals are what? Unhealthy meals. So unplanned sexual experiences open open us up to lots of things that could eventually be a hurdle to that sexual intimacy. Reject the idea that planning sex will rob from romance. Spontaneous sex is great when it happens, but planned sex is consistent and needed. So plan it. And then last thing, practically prioritize each other by using resources. Listen to podcasts, read some books together about sex and sexuality. One recommendation I would like to make, I've listened to it, they're believing people. Uh, It is, I wouldn't listen to it with my kids necessarily, but I would listen to it with my wife. We have listened to it, we'll continue to listen to it, is a podcast called One Extraordinary Marriage. Right now there's 400 and something podcast episodes ranging from, Lots of emotional things to lots of sexual things. It's been a gift to me and to our marriage. And so invest some time into listening to those. Bands back up. I wanna pray for us, give us space to respond this morning uh, and invite us to do so. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the ways you extend it to us. Thank you for the gift you give us of sex inside of our marriages. Help us to express it uh, unashamedly. Help us to to strip away whatever hinders that intimacy. Help us to confess whatever sin stands in our way. Help us to plan, help us to prepare, help us to protect. Help us to make our spouse a priority in our life so that intimacy can blossom from there. ask these things this morning in your name, amen.